Let's all begin with a word of prayer. Father, we are grateful to be here this morning and to have Your Word and to have Your Son's direct teaching to us concerning prayer. And as we have confessed a couple of Sundays ago, Father, You know and we know that we fall greatly short of what You have called us to. And so we have confessed that and we continue to. And thank You for the grace that we have in Christ. His righteousness and His grace not only to cleanse us from sin, but to then transform us into His image. And so we pray that through this text this morning, You would do that in our lives. May we begin more and more to think rightly about talking with You in prayer, our dear Heavenly Father. We pray that You would give us open hearts to receive Your Word and then the ability and the desire to obey your word. For your glory, we ask all these things in the name of Jesus. Amen. As I said, I'd like to turn to this familiar text, and we'll read it in just a moment. Um, it's not up there, is it? Let's see. I'm not sure. Well, you're in Matthew chapter 6. And this text, Matthew 9, Matthew 6, 9 through 13, which is the text, as you know, that many have called the Lord's Prayer. And this text is truly foundational to all praying. And it's a, an exceptional teaching in a way, as I see it teaching us how to pray as God would have us to, because this text embodies the Lord's exact verbal instruction during His earthly ministry concerning how to pray. And of course, there is a companion text found in Luke 11. I don't know that it's the same time, but it's a similar teaching. And what I find very interesting about that text also is that this is the thing that we see in the New Testament that the disciples asked Jesus directly to teach them. He said, Lord, teach us to pray. And Jesus said, we'll pray then in this way. Now as we come to this text, Matthew 9, Matthew 6, 9-13, through 13, I want to give us a bit of an introduction to some of the context. Because what we're coming to is the Sermon on the Mount. The Sermon on the Mount is something we need to come to very carefully. The Sermon on the Mount is, we might call it, the law of the kingdom of God as explained by Jesus Christ, who is the king of that kingdom. He is the king of the kingdom of God. Certainly when Jesus came and taught and lived, He didn't just do away with the application of the law to our lives. In fact, He says in this sermon, Matthew 5 and verse 17, He says, do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same 
will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. So that's one thing we must understand as we're coming to this particular text, is that it is Jesus teaching in great measure about the law of the kingdom of God, of which he is the king. However, we must be careful not to view Jesus' Sermon on the Mount as a list of duties that one must accomplish in order to become a member of Christ's kingdom or enter the kingdom of God. We know that's true because of what Jesus said, particularly in John 3. Jesus said to Nicodemus, Unless what happens, a man cannot even see or enter the kingdom of God, unless a man be born again. Why is that? Because a man in himself cannot keep the law of God. In fact, Jesus says it here, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of God. So he's talking about a righteousness that is perfect. In fact, he says for us at the end of verse At the end of chapter 5, in verse 48, he says, you therefore must be what? Perfect. And he's not just talking about mature there. He means perfect because he says perfect in what way? As your heavenly Father is perfect. So this Sermon on the Mount is not given to us as a law that we are to pursue in order to be perfect and thereby enter the kingdom of God. It simply will not work for us. Not because the law, like Paul often said, not because the law is evil, but because we are sinful and weak. So then, the Sermon on the Mount is, first of all, to be viewed by every sinner as a tutor. Paul would agree with that. It's a tutor. It's a teacher. It tutors us about some things. The Sermon on the Mount tutors us about some things. It tutors us about our true sinfulness and the just sentence before the holiness of the King of Heaven. When we feel the weight of the Sermon on the Mount and any law of God upon our hearts, we understand then, if we understand it rightly, that we are sinful and unable to enter the kingdom of God by our own righteousness. It tutors us in that. It makes it clear. That's what the law is for. It shows us our inability to achieve our own by our own doing the kind of righteousness and goodness and holiness that is absolutely necessary for anyone to see the kingdom of God. And Jesus, in this sermon, helped us to understand how sinful and how unable we are. And He pressed the law to its true meaning. Notice, for example, in chapter 5 and verse 20, I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds the righteousness of the scribes and Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of God. We already looked at that. The other bookend is verse 48. Unless you're perfect, like your heavenly Father is perfect, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. And he intensified, or actually I shouldn't say intensify, he didn't intensify the law. He, He rightly explained the law in verse 21 and following. He says, you've heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. Whoever says, you fool, 
will be liable to the fire of hell. Or verse 27, if you have heard that it was said, you shall not commit adultery, but I say to you that everyone who looks at a woman with lustful intent has already committed adultery with her in his heart. And so on. Jesus is explaining that God's law convicts us of sin, exposes us as we are, not just by pointing out some external mistakes that we make, but it reveals the internal desires of our heart as being just as equally sinful and sentenceable before a holy God as any action that we might take. He shows us the true meaning of the law here. But the Sermon on the Mount also then tutors us to go to the King. To go to the King Himself, Jesus Christ, and to mourn over our sin. And mourn over our inability to our inability to live in righteousness before Him. To confess to Him our poverty. Our poverty, our spiritual poverty to produce righteousness that is acceptable to Him, and to ask Him to have mercy on us and to forgive us for our sin and to declare us righteousness by His own perfect righteousness. For indeed, He fulfilled the law. He kept the whole law perfectly Himself to then make us members of His kingdom by His own righteousness and by changing us from the heart and bringing us to God. You see some of that in the very first words of Christ. Chapter 5, verse 2, and he opened his mouth and taught them, saying, Blessed are the poor in spirit. The poor in spirit, those who know that they are spiritually bankrupt of any ability to bring about a righteousness that is pleasing to God and makes us a way into the kingdom of God. We're poor when it comes to self-righteousness. We don't have it. Blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Theirs is the kingdom of God. Those who are know that though they are poor in spirit, what do they do then to gain righteousness? They go to the king who is perfectly righteous and receive his righteousness in their place. Blessed are those who mourn. What are they mourning about? Their sin and their poverty spiritually. They're mourning. They, they begin to see the depth of the offense that they have committed against God. And they mourn over it. And they, it is they who will be comforted. The meek, for they shall inherit the earth. Those who are hungering and thirsting after righteousness, they want to have the righteousness of God, but find themselves spiritually impoverished. And so they go to the king for that righteousness, and therefore they are what? They are satisfied. Because they're given what they long for. They've given what they hunger after. So for the one whom Christ has already made a member of His kingdom by grace, these qualities begin to make themselves evident in their life. When a person in their sin, in their poverty, in their mourning, comes to Christ to receive His righteousness, He brings us to God. It's like it says here, blessed are the pure in heart. Those who singularly have their heart set on knowing God through Christ, they will see God. And when we want that, we express faith toward Christ. And we even ask, right? Uh, Matthew 7, 7 and following, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. 
Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to, to the one who knocks, it will be opened. And so on. This is life in the kingdom of God. And so those whom Christ has already then made a member of His kingdom by grace, who has transferred out of the kingdom of darkness and into the kingdom of His dear Son, the Sermon on the Mount becomes a profile. The profile of a person who is being transformed into the image of their King. The Lord Jesus Christ Himself. Through the renewing work of the Holy Spirit. That's what it means then to become a kingdom member of Christ. He shapes us into His image. We don't enter the kingdom by keeping the law, but now that we are in the kingdom by His grace, He transforms us through the Holy Spirit. The King transforms us by the Holy Spirit to look like Him more and more. And to love His law from the heart. And to have a greater ability to walk in His ways. And so when we come to the second chapter of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which is Matthew 6, we find that our praying is something that our King Jesus wants to change with us. (laughs) He wants to change the way we pray. He wants to teach us how to pray in a way that honors His Father. Because there is no higher longing in the heart of the Son than to honor the Father. We hear that from Jesus' own mouth many times through the Gospels. Prayer is to be a natural and continual part of the worship and thanksgiving of a kingdom member from their heart toward our Father who made us in His image and is recreating us in His image through Christ. And so Jesus in this text is teaching us to talk to our Heavenly Father in prayer. Not so that we can earn something from God. Not so that others will admire us in prayer. We'll talk about that in just a moment. Not so that we will feel better about our own selves spiritually. But so that we may honor our Father from our hearts and in the overflow of our words to Him, bring Him glory. Jesus will teach us to pray like that for those reasons. He is going to teach us to pray so that we will learn to think the way our Father thinks. And want what he wants and ask him to do what he already has planned to do. Jesus will teach us to pray so that our words and prayer to our Father will not be empty and thoughtless and repetitious or self serving or hurried or distracted or even burdensome to us. He's going to teach us to pray so that we will give, we will. That, that we give, to our, give ourselves to, the, to be human instruments in God's hands. Let me say that again. He's going to teach, Jesus is going to teach us to pray from this text so that we will desire to give ourselves to be the human instruments in God's hands for the unfolding of His sovereign plans by which He's going to bring glory to Himself and save sinners. And so that we learn to be men and women declared righteous like Elijah, whose prayers God used to accomplish much for his kingdom. So as we refresh our hearts in this text by the ministry of the Holy Spirit through his word, let this be our prayer. And this, our prayer, as we come into this text together, is also the main idea. And I'm going to borrow it right 
from verse 9. Jesus says, pray then like this. You see it? Matthew 6, 9. Pray then like this, Jesus says. And so we'll borrow that and we'll say, Lord Jesus, teach us to pray then like this. That's, that's what we need to come to as we, we learn this text. Lord Jesus, teach us to pray then like this. Let me read the text to us this morning. Matthew 6, 9 through 13. Pray then like this, our Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread. And forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. And we'll stop there. Before we get into the details of Matthew 6, 9-13, let me orient us then to the immediate context. First of all, there's two... There's two observations that we need to make just within Matthew 6 right here. One is that observe that prayer is a God-centered activity. Prayer is a God-centered activity. There's two aspects about this that I want you to see here in in these verses. One is that prayer is never about getting something from men. That may surprise you. But Jesus addresses that in this text. Prayer is a God-centered activity and therefore it's never about getting something from men. Look at verses 5 and 6. Jesus says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites. What do hypocrites do? Well, they love to stand and pray in the synagogue and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. Truly I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you pray, go into your room and shut the door and pray to your Father who is in secret. And your Father who sees in secret will reward you. I'm not going to cover everything in those two verses. I just want to get this one point to us into our hearts. What is it that people want from other people as they pray publicly? Well, they want praise for themselves, right? That's what we see here. Hypocrites, Jesus says, they love to stand in visible places so that they can be heard as they pray, and that's their purpose. Notice, they stand at street corners in the middle of verse 5 for a reason, that they may be seen by others. And so when they pray, they immediately get the answer to their prayer. What's the answer to their prayer? They're seen by others. They appear to be very prayerful, pious, religious, and knowledgeable, and so on and so on. So they immediately have the reward. Praise for themselves. Public prayer is fine. That's not what Jesus is saying. Don't ever pray publicly. No, Jesus would never say something that contradicts himself. 1 Timothy chapter 2 encourages us to pray publicly. We've talked about that. 
But even public prayer is to be focused from the heart on God as our audience and not focused on getting praise from other people. That is the heart of those two verses, verses 5 and 6. But how we struggle with that. You, 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 can you join me in that, that um, confession? That we struggle with prayer because in it, there is a sinful motive that so easily comes up. Say, I want other people to hear the way I'm praying and admire me spiritually. Jesus says that is to pray as a hypocrite. That's not what prayer is about. Prayer is a God-centered activity. We have an audience of one. And we have Him in our minds. We sinful, idolatrous human beings love ourselves so much that we try to get some sort of praise for ourselves by using prayer as an attraction point. And like Jesus says, in that case, we don't need any answers to our prayers, do we? We don't need a response from God because we already have all that we were out to get in the moment of prayer. We wanted attention, and we got it. This is one of the reasons why we sinners need Christ to rescue us from our sin. That is the law of God weighing on our hearts. We need rescue from idolatry. Idolatry in prayer. Worship of self rather than worship of God in prayer. And this is why we need Christ to make us members of His kingdom and change us from the heart so that self-praise becomes repulsive to us in the moment of prayer. And we need Jesus to teach us how to pray in a God-centered way. Another way that Jesus teaches us that prayer is God-centered, a God-centered activity is that prayer is not primarily about getting something from God. Getting what we want out of God. That makes it about us. That's not primarily what prayer is about. Prayer certainly involves making many requests to God. But that is not for ourselves. But that is not the primary objective of prayer. We do make many requests to God that we desire. But that's not even the primary objective of prayer. What do you mean by that? Well, look at verses 7 and 8. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do. For they think that they will be heard for their many words. Do not be like them, for your Father knows what you need before you ask Him. And then Jesus says, pray then like this. I mean, think about that. Prayer is not primarily resting from God what we want for ourselves. Focus of prayer is not to, first of all, inform God about what we want at all. That's not the focus of prayer. It's not to inform God about what we want and, and need even, and then try to move God by our words, whether by quantity of words or quality of words, so that God finally relents and gives us what we're asking for. God giving me what I want is not the primary motive of prayer, and God moving and God a God moving force of words is certainly not the method of prayer. That's what Jesus says. He tells us one that our Father already knows what we need, and then He also tells us that heaping up words, heaping up empty phrases, thinking that. We will be heard 
because of our many words. As if many words in prayer will move God's heart to make a different decision. That's not prayer. You know what that is? That's paganism. That's what, that's what pagan idolaters do when they go to great physical extents so that they make sure their God hears them. People in history have even offered their children as a sacrifice so that their gods will hear them. That's not prayer to our Father. God has a far greater knowledge of our needs than we do. God has a far greater desire to be generous to us who are in Christ and to give us what we truly need than we have a desire to even ask for what we want. God's knowledge and desires are far greater than ours. This is not the primary focus of prayer. Prayer is about something much bigger. Prayer is God-centered. Yes, prayer is asking for things that we need, but prayer is something bigger than that. And I believe that part of, that, that part of the reason for the, if I can say it, the emaciation of prayer in our lives is our misunderstanding or our forgetfulness of the highest purposes and priorities in prayer. It is always true, isn't it, that, that we will not engage in something passionately or be effective and joyful in its usage if we misunderstand its very purpose. So then what is our highest purpose in prayer? And this is when we come to our second preliminary thought. We're still all in the introduction. I want us to get ready for taking in these, these words. The second preliminary introduction is not only that we observe that prayer is God-centered, but let's observe the structure of the text, the prayer itself, and what it reveals to us about prayer. There is a specific strategic order to the words that Jesus lays out for us. This prayer is not meant to be repeated as a mindless mantra, if you will. This prayer is to be prayed in its meaning, in its order, in its priorities. Let's look at the structure together. First of all, prayer is about a relationship. That's what you see first. Prayer is about a relationship, isn't it? Pray then like this. What? What comes first? Our Father in heaven. Talking to God about He is, about who He is. That's what comes first. We see here, God is, our Father is what? He is heavenly. Our heavenly Father, we say. Our Father in heaven. We talk about God to Him. And then, on the tail of that overwhelming reality of our heavenly Father, we then talk to Him about who He has made us to be in Christ. We are a father-child relationship. We're the child of that heavenly Father. That relationship surrounds the entire concept of prayer. The next thing you can see then becomes, it begins the requests. So prayer is first of all about a relationship. Second, here's the primary requests. Prayer is about God's reputation. Prayer is about God's reputation. The first request that Jesus gives us to pray is, hallowed be your name. 
What does that mean? That God would be known as He really is and worshipped as He truly deserves. This first request is the ultimate priority of prayer. Every other request in this prayer serves that primary request. We'll talk about it. I'm just giving you the introduction to the structure. First, number one, prayer is about a relationship. Number two, prayer is about a reputation. And it's not ours, it's God's reputation. Hallowed be your name. And every other request in this prayer comes under those two things and serves them. Serves the relationship we have with God. Serves God's reputation. Next, you can see prayer is about God's return. Your kingdom come. There will be nothing like the return of the king to hallow the name of God. But that's still future. So what about now? Prayer is also about God's reign. So it's about a relationship. It's about God's reputation. Prayer is about God's return. Your kingdom come. Prayer is about God's reign. Your kingdom come. Your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. I mean, next to the king's immediate return, the salvation of sinners and the sanctification of the saved will serve to hallow God's name. So we ask for it. Again, we'll talk about it. Now come the secondary requests. In order for God's reputation to be what it ought in the earth, in order for God to return, in order for God's reign to expand, we certainly need to be kept and supplied to walk in in those ways of God. So what we will need for the doing of God's will as we are being sanctified, and what we will need for the faithful proclamation of the gospel while we wait for the king's return is what? We need some resources. Prayer is about God's resources. Give us this day our daily bread. We will need spiritual and physical resources to do God's will and to be used by Him to advance His kingdom now and to wait for His return. We're going to need divine resources. Then prayer is about God's reconciliation. We will never be used by God rightly and in a holy way to build His reputation on the earth if we are not living in reconciliation with Him and with others. Forgive us our debts as we also have forgiven our debtors. We will need God's grace to enjoy and extend His forgiveness to others if we are going to do His will and hallow His name. And then finally, we'll see that prayer is about God's refuge. If we're going to bring glory to God and hallow His name and be used by Him to hallow His name, then we will need Him to keep us from the evil one, to deliver us from temptation. We will need His constant keeping, guarding, protection from the temptations and the ability to persevere faithfully through trials. Alright, there's the structure. You can see how this folds out. Prayer is all about God's relationship. The relationship we have with us. And in that prayer, our priority is what? God's reputation. Everything else serves that. His coming His will being done, our being provided for, and so on, will serve His reputation in the world. So let's look at each one of these requests carefully. And we'll do half today, and Lord willing, the second half next Sunday. Number one, 
relationship. Verse 9, pray then like this, our Father in heaven. In this opening, there are two realities of which we must be mindful as we come to prayer. Two realities in this opening. First, the heavenliness of God. We've got to have that fill us as we come to prayer. Otherwise, we won't pray rightly. In prayer, we are speaking to the transcendent God of heaven. Now, I could take, we, we all could take years to unfold that, eternities. But let me point us to one text that, that puts together the transcendence and the imminence of God, and both of those things should, bring, should be brought to our minds in, in prayer. Turn to Isaiah chapter 40. We first need to have a mind filled with the heavenliness of God, our Father in heaven. That's how we begin prayer. You know, some of us, and you know, even our children, as, as we learn to grow in how to pray, sometimes we might say, Dear Lord, and we rush into prayer asking. And there's nothing wrong with talking to any one of the three persons of the Trinity in prayer. But I think sometimes we should step back and say, how do I begin my prayer and why? And look to how Jesus taught us to think first about the heavenliness of our Father. Our Father in heaven. And what we see here in this text is that heavenliness, that greatness, that transcendence of God. Verse 12, Isaiah 40 verse 12, Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span and closed the dust of the earth in a measure and weighted the mount and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance each one of those descriptions of god is breathtaking all of the seven seas can be held in the palm of god's hand the distance between his pinky and his thumb, as it were, marks out the heavens? Who has measured the Spirit of the Lord? Or what, has, what man shows him his counsel? Whom did he consult? Who made him understand? What's the answer? Those are all rhetorical questions. The answer is what? No one. God is inherently infinite in knowledge. Who taught him the path of justice? Taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding. Behold, the nations are like a what? Ding, ding, ding. A drop in the bucket to God. That is a great God. All the nations, all the clattering nations that we see around us today and all over the news and so on and so forth, to God, ding, 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 a drop in the bucket to our great God. And are accounted as the dust on the scales. When you go to measure, ladies, when you have your kitchen scales and you go to measure something, maybe you're, maybe you're making some bread, do you wipe off the dust on the scale? so that it measures properly? No. Why? It's insignificant. 
It doesn't change anything. The nations are like a drop in the bucket. They, the nations, are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. When you have a backyard fire, how much wood do you need? When God has a sacrifice, not all of the Hiawatha forest would suffice. God is so great. All the nations are as nothing before him. Verse 17, they are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol? A craftsman casts it and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains? Can you compare God to any human-made God? Not even in the same ballpark. Not even close. Not even the same galaxy. How great is our God. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Have you not heard? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretch out the heavens like a curtain, and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing, and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, Scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them. The rulers of the earth, that is. And they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One. Lift up your eyes on high and see. Who created these? Now we look to the heavens and we see the stars and the planets and the galaxies. Who created these? He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might, and because he is strong in power, not one is missing. All the stars, all the galaxies, all the planets, everything in the universe that's expanding continually is all in the perfect mind and power of our God. So when you come to prayer, have that God in mind. And everything else will fall away, right? Everything else will look insignificant. First, the heavenliness of God. Our Father in heaven. But then, when you imagine, and we, we cannot even begin to grasp this morning, this text is the best I can do, the best, the best that we have to look at, and it's certainly sufficient, but so much more throughout the Scriptures and in eternity we will learn, but on the tales of that greatness, Jesus calls us to remember that we are children of this transcendent God. So first, 
bring to mind the heavenliness of God, but then second, the fatherliness of God. We're speaking to the transcendent God of heaven, whom in Christ we may call what? Father. That's my Father. That one is my Father. That one is your Father. That God. Look at verse 27. That's where God speaks next through the prophet Isaiah. Why then do you say, O Jacob? Now he's coming close. He's showing Israel, the Israelites his greatness and his glory in several ways. But now he's coming near as their father and as their, their king and as their tender caretaker. And he says, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel? My way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God. God won't see us. God doesn't know what we need. God won't keep his promises, his covenant promises to us, the things that, that he has told us he will do among us, that he said to Abraham and Isaac and Jacob and so on. He won't do that. The things he has promised to us in Christ, he won't do that. That's what God's people often say. My right is disregarded by my God. Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint. He comes near in all of His glory and strength. And He gives to the weakest children of us His strength. And to Him who has no might, He increases strength. Even youths, even the strongest of us, will faint and be weary. And young men shall fall exhausted, but those who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. Now that is a transcendent God and an imminent God. A God who is very near and fatherly. That is what Jesus wants us to have in mind as we come to prayer. Our Father who is in heaven. So by the Holy Spirit that is within us, these are the truths that we must hold. When we come to our Father in prayer, come with that. If if we do come with those things in mind, I believe that we will come with the right heart. We will come to prayer with a heart filled with awe and adoration and gratitude and humility. But we must also understand that there's a difference between having God as our Father Creator and having God as our Father Redeemer. Let me address this one moment and share the Gospel with you, really. There is a sense in which every human being can call God their Father. Acts 17.28 says, For in Him we live and move and have our being. Even some of your own poets have said, For we are indeed His offspring. So there is a sense in which we can call God our Father. And when I mean we, I mean all of us as a human race. Every one of us born into this world. We can call God our Father on the basis that He is our Creator. He breathes the breath of life into every human being. But that's not the kind of father-child relationship that Jesus is referring to in this prayer. It's a different one. There is a sense in which only those whom Christ has redeemed by His blood are the children of God and call God Father. Well, how can you say that? 
Because John 8, 44, Jesus looks at those who would not trust in Him and says to them, you are of your father, the devil. So those who are born into the world, though they say, we're all children of God, they're in a sense right, in that God is their creator. But they are wrong in the sense that they would call God their loving father, redeemer, and they his children. You see, there's only one kind of person that can call God Father in the sense that Christ is referring to here. Jesus, or John, John writes in John chapter 1, 12 and 13, but to all who received Him, who received Jesus, who believed in His name, who believed in who He is and the power that He had to save sinners, what He came to do. Who those who believe in His name, who them... To them He gave the right to become children of God. Those who are children of God in the sense that Jesus is talking about in this prayer. Those who are born not of blood, nor the will of flesh, nor the will of man, but born of God. You see, to, to talk with God the Father in prayer the way Jesus is teaching us here takes more than one birth. To have God as our Father in this sense requires more than an earthly birth. It requires a heavenly birth. It requires a spiritual birth. It requires being born of God through Jesus Christ. Is that who you are today? Are you a child of the Father through the new birth? If you're not, then you can't talk to God this way. He does not hear the prayers of those who love their sin and continue in it. He does it. He says it in His Word. He doesn't hear the prayers of those who do not love His law because they have a changed heart through the new birth and seek to follow Him. God the Father hears the prayers of His children whom He has purchased by the blood of Christ. And so therefore, the opening of this prayer implies something powerful and wonderful we can only have fellowship with the Father in prayer when we are made a child of God by salvation in Jesus Christ. If you don't know that you have that salvation in Jesus Christ and that your sins are forgiven and that you've been declared righteous, I would encourage you not to leave the service today, but to come and talk with me. I'd certainly love to, to share with you the gospel or or in, in introduce you to someone that can share the gospel with you and show you how you can become a true child of God, not just through creation, but by the new birth, through faith in Jesus Christ. But all who are born of God can call God Father in this way. Romans 8, 9-16 says, You, however, are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit. If in fact the Spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the Spirit of Christ does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. So then, brothers, we're not debtors we are, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led 
by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you've received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, what? Abba, Father, being born of God through Christ gives you the right to call God your Father and to call Him very intimately Father. The Spirit Himself bears witness with your spirit that you are a child of God then. It's only through faith in Christ that we have this privilege. Galatians 3.26, For in Christ Jesus, in Christ Jesus, you are all sons of God through faith. The only reason that we are heard in prayer by this transcendent Father is because of Jesus Christ. Romans 5, 1 and 2 bears this out so plainly. Therefore, since we have been justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ, and through Him, through Christ, we obtain what? Access. That is access in prayer to the throne of grace. Without being justified, without coming through salvation in Jesus Christ, there's no access to the throne of grace. You can't call God Father like this. But in Christ, you may and come boldly. Hebrews 4, 14-16 Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens. Jesus, the Son of God, let us hold fast to our confession. For we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then, because we have this high priest, because we hold fast to this confession of faith in Christ and have received His salvation, let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. That's what it means to have your prayers heard. To have mercy and grace coming your way when you need it, when you ask for it from your Heavenly Father. And there is no other mediator right, between God and men but whom? The man, Christ Jesus. 1 Timothy 2, verses 5-6. So Lord Jesus, teach us to pray then like this. Teach us to pray then like this. So first, Christ teaches us to come into prayer mindful of this relationship. But secondly, Christ teaches us that our first request should be about His reputation. And there's where we'll pick up next week. We'll we'll begin with that first request. But may the Lord, even this week, begin to stir us in our hearts so that we come to prayer thinking, being mindful through the Spirit of God about the heavenliness of God and the fatherliness of God. That's the introduction to our prayer. That's the introduction to Christ's prayer that he teaches us. Pray then like this.